After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The Gospel of Christ. Christ. I want to read a short passage from Luke chapter 22, verses 35 to 38. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. The word of the Lord. What we are about this evening, what we are remembering, what we are celebrating may be new for, for some of you, but for the majority, you've heard John 13 before, and you know what Jesus' actions indicate and teach. Monday, Thursday, mandate. Thursday, the the new mandate, the new commandment that Jesus gave to the disciples, love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And here in John 13, we are presented with this image-filled scene as Jesus sets the pattern that the disciples are to follow, that they are to trace in their own love and service to one another. Jesus performs the lowliest of jobs, menial work for servants not a teacher or rabbi, and certainly not a messiah. 
And Jesus laying aside his outer garments, taking a towel and tying it around his waist, we're given a picture of the incarnation itself, of Jesus setting aside his heavenly glory in order to serve his people and the world, sacrificing of himself, even as he establishes and models the kind of kingdom that has come in him. Then after his work is done, he puts back on his outer garments and resumes his place, a picture of his coming exaltation, which follows after his humiliation. And Jesus Jesus makes it clear that he's given the disciples something to do, not just to think about. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. And what is it that he's done? Well, he's washed their feet. He's served them. And the disciples themselves are also to have this reputation of love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is making it very clear. He's instructing his disciples. He's loving them to the end. And yet we find in the Gospels and even in these last hours with Jesus before his betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion that the disciples still don't get it. They, they don't understand Now, John is the only gospel to record the foot-washing scene, and he's clear to tell us that it took place during the supper. The event that John records next at the end of chapter 13 is Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial, as we just heard a moment ago. And when we compare Luke's order of events as found in chapter 22, we find that Jesus institutes the supper, and then a dispute breaks out among the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Had Jesus just washed their feet moments before and they didn't really comprehend what he was teaching them? Did the dispute arise during the supper spurring Jesus to wash their feet? That may be the more likely scenario given what John records Jesus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And that sounds quite similar to what Luke records Jesus saying in chapter 22 and verse 26. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I'm among you as the one who serves. And then after this scene, Peter's predicted denial of Jesus is also recorded by Luke, which then brings us to this short text which only Luke records, and which is arguably an odd little text. You know, what's going on here, and what's the import of it? Well, scholars are certainly divided as to the meaning of Jesus' words, and we'll do our best to get a sense of it, and hopefully grasp the bearing it has for us as the church and disciples of Christ today. Um, I'm strongly suspicious that there's a chiasm in these four verses, with verse 37 at the center. I realize that it makes it a little bit lopsided or top-heavy with so many words being used in verses 35 to 36, but Jesus begins by asking if the the disciples, if they had any lack when they were sent out, and then he concludes in the latter part of verse 38 that it is enough, it is sufficient. Then Jesus talks about money bags, knapsacks, cloaks, and swords in verse 36, and then in the first part of verse 38, the disciples mention two swords. Now, if this structure is tenable, then that, pal- that places Jesus' quotation and application of the text from Isaiah in the middle as the central focal point, the main theological point for our consideration. It, t- it tells us that it carries some weight and that Jesus is saying something significant. 
So let's begin to make our way through the text. And Jesus questioned the disciples about sending him out before without money bag, knapsack, or sandals. Takes us back to Luke chapters 9 and 10 when Jesus sends out the 12 and the 72. And when they were sent out in this fashion and were to be relying upon others to supply them with their needs, did they ever have any lack? And the disciples readily respond that they lack nothing. And through these preliminary mission trips around Judea, these evangelistic tours, if you will, the disciples were learning the work of the kingdom. They were getting uh, real-world practice for ministry for what would be further entailed for their calling as apostles. And Jesus sends them out, and then they come back to Jesus, and you remember how they report how things went. So they're directly under Jesus' supervision. And they gain some experience, even some confidence about what Jesus has called them to do. But what Jesus goes on to say in verse 36, a significant change is going to take place, even as indicated in the strong adversative that Jesus employs when he says, but now. You know, if we use the analogy of riding a bike, Jesus is saying the training wheels are going to come off and it's time to ride the bike for real. You know, before they didn't need to take a money bag, now he's telling them to do so. Before they didn't need a knapsack, now if they've got one, take it along. And then perhaps the line that causes the most consternation, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And the word for cloak is a word we find often in the Gospels, some uh, 39 times, often indicating the outer garment. Most recently in Luke's Gospel, the same term was used in chapter 19 of the disciples spreading their cloaks upon the ground before Jesus as he rides in uh, to Jerusalem upon the donkey. Now, what causes the most debate among scholars is whether or not to take Jesus' word literally, figuratively, or maybe somewhere in between. The, the literal understanding would indicate that Jesus is telling the disciples that hostility against them is going to increase, that because they're going out into the wider world and traveling, that they'll need some form of self-defense, a weapon for personal protection, whether from a wild animal or a robber or something like that. A more figurative understanding might be that Jesus doesn't literally mean money, bag, knapsack, and sword, but is simply encouraging the disciples to be ready, to be prepared, and to take whatever means are necessary for them. One of the arguments for the figurative versus the literal reading is that in just a short while, at Jesus' betrayal and arrest in the garden, Luke records, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. In Matthew's account of the scene, we're told, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Basically, the case against Jesus encouraging the disciples to actually sell a cloak and buy a sword is made by Jesus himself when he condemns the use of the sword on this occasion. So he must be speaking figuratively. And that's a reasonably compelling argument, though I'm not entirely convinced that one necessarily negates the other. It's certainly clear that Jesus' kingdom is not advanced by the edge of the sword. But that doesn't negate the biblical right of self-defense, which I do think is a fair application of what Jesus is saying, even if the disciples don't get it. And we have to note the contrast that Jesus is setting forth here. Where, wherever the disciples went before, they received hospitality. But that's no longer going to be the case. Now they need to be prepared for greater hostility. Jesus is actually getting them ready for when he's no longer going to be with them. A fact that they still don't fully understand either. 
You know, if we were to keep reading in John's gospel, we'd encounter more of this kind of conversation that Jesus has with the disciples about his going away and sending the Spirit, and that it's better that he goes away, and so forth. And in his knowing that he's going away, he's, he's getting the disciples ready and treating them less like children and more like adults. You know, Jesus has been there with them. He's performed miracles, and he's provided for them, sometimes miraculously. But he's going away. And so he's instructing the disciples that they must diligently employ all lawful and reasonable means for their support and protection. You know, the, the conditions for their ministry are going to change, and they need to take that into account. And here's where the, the figurative application of Jesus' word certainly has, has some weight, even as J.C. Rowell puts it. We are not to neglect human instrumentality in doing Christ's work or to expect Christ's blessing if we do not diligently use all lawful means within our reach. But even as the disciples are going to be sent out again, their experience with Jesus, their experience when they lack nothing, should be a source of encouragement for them that they will, have, they will still have provision in the new circumstances, circumstances in which they're going to find themselves. Yes, they're going to need to take money and other necessities with them. And it's through these common actions and means of wisdom by which God will provide and by which they'll live by faith. You know, by way of analogy, you don't stop working, you don't stop going to work because you pray, give us this day our daily bread. Nor do you stop praying that because you go to work. No, God provides the daily bread and God uses the means of your work, of your employment to supply you with what you need. Perhaps another helpful analogy will press home the point. You know, when when Israel was in the wilderness, they were guided by the pillar of cloud and fire and fed manna. But once they came into the promised land, the Lord blessed their exertions in cultivating the land. Similarly, the disciples are going from a time that that they couldn't expect constant miracles to be worked on their behalf from the time that Christ left the world. Well, that brings us to the central point of the text in verse 37, where Jesus makes the case for why things are going to change. For I say to you, thus that this writing, it is necessary to be fulfilled in me, that also with the lawless he is to be reckoned. And for that concerning me has an end. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 53, 12. And and notice a couple things first. First, that Jesus himself informs us that Isaiah 53 refers to him. He is the suffering servant. I know that's stating the obvious, but that's no small point. Um, in, in, in some regard, Jesus is teaching us how to read the Bible. Second, the use of the divine necessity makes another appearance. Jesus says this must happen, even as we've noted on other occasions in Luke in past weeks, particularly in Luke 13, that Jesus must go to Jerusalem. See, this is Jesus' last prediction of his passion, the last thing that he must do. Be reckoned with the lawless, to be considered as one who hasn't kept the law, though he's kept it perfectly. And whenever there's a quote from the Old Testament, we're encouraged to go looking for some of the larger context. What goes just before and after this line from Isaiah 53, 12? Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. 
because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So Jesus is headed to his death to be numbered with transgressors and in so doing bears the sin of many. Now what's the implication of Jesus citing the prophet? Well, that he's going to die a substitutionary death. That is one reckoned to be as lawless as one going to die for others, for transgressors, for those in rebellion against God, that he will make them to be accounted as righteous and will even intercede on their behalf. He will bear their iniquities, the twistedness of their sin, he will take upon himself. Jesus being identified with sinners is nothing new in Luke's gospel, and he even gets in to trouble with the religious conservatives for it. Remember the beginning of Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So in a sense, this is nothing new to Jesus, but now he's going to complete the divine plan, bring it to an end, to, to bring it to fulfillment what's been written about him. The divine purpose for which Jesus has come, to which the scriptures testify, is to gain this very reputation. That he might be the suffering, righteous prophet who identifies with sinful humanity, placed in solidarity with sinners, and to die on their behalf to be crucified between two malefactors. And, and hopefully you can feel some of the weight of Jesus' words here and what he's saying and their implication. It's, it's a powerful statement that he's making in this moment. And if we were to, to back up and take the whole of the suffering servant song in Isaiah 52.13 through 53.12, what would we further discover? That Yahweh delights in this servant, even as the song begins, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. He's Yahweh's servant. Yahweh is pleased with him and with the plan he is to follow. He shall be lifted up and exalted. But then you go on to read the rest of the song and you quickly realize that what the servant must endure and what is being reckoned with the lawless is only part of it. He will be despised and rejected by men. He'll be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The iniquity of us all will be laid on him. It was the will of Yahweh to crush him, to put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. That's what Jesus is going to accomplish. That's what he must do. That's what lies before him. And then Luke tells us, And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. If the moment weren't so serious, it would almost be comical. But instead, it's it's shameful. The disciples are so seemingly fixated on swords that Jesus' instruction from Isaiah just seems to be missed or ignored. Jesus' terse reply, it is sufficient, it is enough, is not, saying, is not him saying two swords are enough because, well, that doesn't make sense. There are 11 disciples. Rather, it's to bring the conversation to a close. as almost to say, you know, enough talking about that. The discussion has come to an end in closing out Luke's upper room discourse narrative on a sour note. And for all that we're celebrating tonight, for what we are being called to remember in the new commandment, and the love and service we're to render to one another as we follow Christ's example, let us be impressed anew with the lengths to which he went to express that love, 
a reality we'll further meditate upon tomorrow night. And let us recognize Jesus' unwavering pursuit of his Father's plan, despite the weaknesses and failings of his followers, of those who were closest to him. And let that push us to greater humility, even in considering our own shortcomings, and hopefully to engender in us greater patience with others, which also is a way of expressing love for one another and being patient with one another. And as we come to partake of the Lord's provision for us, as he feeds us with bread and wine, may it strengthen our faith to be all the more diligent for the work of ministry to which each of us are called as members of the body of Christ, trusting him to provide for all that is needed, even as he gave himself and has promised so much more beside. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for your word, and we thank you for the teaching of Christ. And may we be disciples who hear and understand the word you are speaking to us this evening. Help us to this end and strengthen us by your spirit. For these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.